Hello again, everyone, and welcome to today's show. If you're one of the 130 million people that are dealing with SIRS, Lyme disease, autoimmune disease, or other conditions that are impacted by mold on a daily basis, and you need to learn how to eliminate that exposure, then you're in the right place. My name is Brian Carr, and you're listening to Mold Finders Radio. start hammering out different questions came through so first one can a remediated house still smell musty like mold yeah let's think about that all right what does a remediated house mean in theory it means that you probably got rid of all the mold right if you're still smelling a musty smell that musty smell is a sign of active mold growth that is happening if we know that that's that's kind of our, our indicator for that there's a mold issue going on. Listen, you're not always going to have a musty smell when there's a mold problem, but if you have a musty smell, it's like a big, big red flag, okay? So if somebody came in and remediated and you come back in and it still smells musty, then there's still a problem, okay? Either there's still a source that's going on that they didn't get to, or the whole house wasn't cleaned properly and you still have the MVOCs that are left over. So that smell is actually microbial volatile organic compound. That's what that smell is. It could have soaked into things. So like part of a remediation has to be a full house wipe down on top of removing source. So hopefully that helps. So this is actually a really kind of connected question to what we just asked here. Uh, Hey Ryan, my house was remediated for mold. However, there's still a high count of aspergillus penicillium in a certain area in the basement. The living quarter area uh, readings were clean. Okay. So that's very similar, right? If you're seeing elevated counts of mold after remediation, one of two things happened. One, they didn't actually remove all the sources, which means you have a source that's still pushing that stuff out there and it's still happening. So that's the first one. The second one is that the area wasn't cleaned after the remediation was done. So you could actually remove all the sources. I could get this wall out, get everything back, clean it, do all that stuff. And if I don't actually clean up the areas around as well, because if you think about it, like mold doesn't just sit back here, right? Like the way that we breathe it, or the way that it hits us is through breathing. We don't stick our faces in the wall, right? That's not what we're doing. We don't stick our noses back here and breathe this. What's happening is that spores are coming out from here and we're breathing it here. If we're breathing it here this far away, then you know that it's pushing and circulating all around and settling everywhere. So if we're not cleaning everything after we remove a source, then you may still have elevated counts. So it's one of the two things, either didn't remove source or they didn't do a home cleanse properly after the case. Let's see, mold prevention tips for homes. Here, let's knock this one out. Okay, mold needs three things to grow. Water, temperature, food source. Okay, these are the three things that it needs. We cannot control two of them. We can't control the temperature. We can't control what our house is built out of. Right? That's the food source. The one thing we can control is moisture. So when we're talking about mold prevention tips, we really have to reframe it around how do we prevent moisture buildup and, and unknown leaks and things like that in different areas to help prevent. Okay, so I'm gonna give you, I don't know, let's see if I come up with three things off the top of my head for you guys. Number one, um, think about areas where there is water sources. Those are gonna be more likely where you're gonna have source issues that occur just because there's moisture there. So the probability is higher. So where are those areas? Bathrooms, kitchens, sinks, anywhere where there's like washing machines, water heaters, anywhere we have like plumbing lines and stuff. 
that's going to be a, a much higher probability area for a source area than something else. So how do we talk about preventing those things? So I'm going to give you three things that we could do right now. Number one, pull everything out from under your sink cabinets every, can I tell you every two weeks? Are you going to do it? Probably not. Let's go with every month. If you could do every month, it's not that hard. And the reason that you want to do this, okay. If you have a leak under your sink and you have all your stuff shoved under your sink cabinet, which all of us do, I have stuff under there too, okay? Then if you're doing that, then you're not gonna be able to see what's going on, okay? And if you can't see what's dripping and what's happening and what's soaking up, then bam, you're gonna have mold problems that happen under there. I bet you, this is all anecdotally, I bet you eight out of every 10 houses that we go into has at least one sink cabinet with a source mold problem in it. So there's number one, be on top of that. If you're on top of it, you can address them before they turn into problems. Second area, let's talk about the showers. Let's talk about showers, that's another area. Okay, big water source, lots of questions came through about showers, grout, cleaning, this, that, how do we handle showers? All right, not in the shower, we're gonna talk about right outside of the shower. So if we're showering, we're doing all the stuff, right? And water gets out of the shower and it gets on the wall next to the shower, and it starts hitting the walls and the baseboards and things like that, then that becomes a water source that impacts food for mold, right? Drywall, wood, you know, all that stuff. And you get mold growing either behind the baseboards or the wall that's over there, okay? That is a super common area where these things happen. It's something we could so easily be on top of and prevent. Don't splash water outside of the shower or the tub. That's a very easy thing. Now, all of you that have kids are gonna say, Brian, I have kids, what do I do? They do that. Teach them not to do that. And I know that sounds, I, I get it, listen, no, I can I'm a parent, it's very hard to like give parenting advice and things like that, but just, just hear me out, okay? I have a, a four-year-old about to turn five-year-old. I've taught her from as soon as she can understand me that water stays in the tub. Water does not come out of the tub. The tub is meant for the water. The water's not meant to go somewhere else. If water gets out of the tub, bad time done, water's off, fun over. And I taught her that. And I taught her that when she was two, when she was three. And now that she's four, about to turn five, she understands stuff, right? We can have full on conversations and stuff now. And you know what happens? If she accidentally splashes a little bit somewhere, she will look at me and she'll be like, oh, I'm sorry, dad, I got water out. And she knows she wasn't supposed to. And you know what I say? I'm like, it's okay, it's okay, we all make mistakes, that's fine. We'll clean it up real quick and just be careful not to do it again, okay? It's not about punishing and stuff, right? But it's about teaching somebody to be aware of that. And if they become aware of it, yeah, we all make mistakes here, there, things happen, whatever. Guys, if water splashes out of a tub when your kid is in there, just dry it off afterwards. Mold needs at least 24 hours to grow. So if they splash and they get out of the shower and if you have to go in there because you have a teenager who's like, I give no Fs about anything, and you have to go in there and wipe down the wall and the shower and stuff and the floor after they shower, then that's a, something that either you need to do or you need to make sure that they're doing it. If you could do that, you prevent the water getting in, you prevent the mold problems from happening, all right? So, um, so that's one thing. Let's see, all right. I paid $1,000 for an inspector to come in and only did air samples. All of you that have been following and listening know that that how I feel about that. <laughs> Even after telling him we had three areas of water damage. Okay, so this person comes in, oh, and let me finish. And I found mold under a bathroom sink, not sure what to do next. Okay, you had an inspector come in, 
You told them the history of your house. You told them you had three areas of water damage and they did air samples in the middle of the room. What does that tell you? It tells you they have no idea what they're doing. So first off, I'm sorry that you spent $1,000 on this, but you can't look at that at all. That thousand bucks kind of out the window. It's over, all right? What really needs to happen is that you need to test at the sources where you have these areas of water damage. Is it under a sink? You said you found mold under a bathroom sink. Then you test under the sink. Now, if you found mold already, then, you know, we can talk about what has to happen. But if you have water damage in a certain place, you have to test those areas at the source to see if there's a problem. Let me look through some more questions here. How do I know what spore counts are considered safe? Spore counts are different for different sample types. So you're going to have, we're going to be talking about air samples or we're going to be talking about swab samples. Okay, so we're going to talk about them both. Swab samples are easier. There is kind of a, a number um, tiering system for score counts. But what I will say first, before we get into that, is we sort of have like a priority, a priority sort of look and framework internally that we use when we create priorities and provide them out down the road for people when remediation comes up. So the first thing, if in a spore sample, so if you're talking air samples or swabs, let's see either one. If Staphylococcus, Ketomium, or Fusarium any of those three molds, Stachybotrys, Ketomium, or Fusarium, are picked up in that sample, then that is an automatic top tier priority one issue, okay? Those molds require more water, they require the most amount of water to grow, which means you likely have a more significant moisture issue that's occurred, and all three of them have toxic capabilities, microtoxin capabilities, right? These are a lot of the big bad news molds. If you start thinking internally, if you guys are running your mycotoxin tests and you have like xerelinone or trichopocenes or ketoglobusin or any of those, those are tied to those molds. So those are automatically top tier, right? So I don't even care what the score count is on those. It could literally be uh, one. I don't care. If it's there, it's an issue we need to look at, okay? So that's the first piece, all right? Now, the next piece, let's talk swabs. There's four different rankings. So when you look at a swab sample and a result, I wish I had the screen up here, but we're talking through it. So if you have swab results, I'm giving you a quick little uh, how to read lab results mini training here. Um, on the left side, you'll see raw score count. On the right side, you'll see count per meter squared. Count per meter squared is a kind of like creating a common denominator so you can get context for all the samples along the same denominator. The reason you have to create a common denominator is because the surface area that you swipe can change. You can say, I swipe one by one inch over here, I swipe three by three inches over here, whatever. And based on that, that can actually change your common denominator. So our standard practice is to do everything at a one by one inch uh, measurement. So we, we understand kind of consistency on our end. It's a standard that we have internally to make sure all of our inspectors are collecting samples the right way and we're doing everything so it's all consistent across the board. So we do everything one by one unless we're in a, spe a special circumstance like a post-remediation or something like that, it would change, but for now we'll go one by one. So when I'm looking at these results, I'm not looking then as much at the raw count because all of ours are very standardized. So I'm looking at the count per uh, meter square. And in the count per meter, meter square, you kind of have a few different areas. You have what's called rare or like very low, which is 10 or under, that'll be, that'll be rare. Then you have 10 to 100, that's called low. Then you have 100 to 1,000, that's medium. And then you have immediate, or then you have 1,000 plus, and that's considered high. So the very easy way to look at this is if you're 100 or over, it's some sort of issue. It could either be a settlement issue or it could be a source growth issue. You can't get into all of that right now on the live, but when I'm looking at swabs, that's sort of how we, we generally look at it. So for you, if you're looking at swab, look at count per meter squared. If it's over 100, it warrants a question, okay? That's on that side. Now on air testing, it's a little different because you have to use baselines to get a sense for what's going on. 
Okay. So we do uh, outside baseline in the front and the back of the house because you can have very different readings in the front and the back of the house, but that surrounds your house. And if you open a window in the back, then stuff comes in. Or you open the front door, stuff comes in. So we do a baseline on both sides, try to get a sense of kind of average that out when we're looking at it. And then when you're looking at air samples, again, those three mold types, automatic problem, chromium, fusarium, stachybotrys, automatic problem, tier one. After that, we're then looking to compare, I'm not necessarily comparing the total spore counts at the bottom, I'm comparing mold to mold. Meaning if I have aspergillus penicillium in my baselines and they average like 250, and then I do a wall cavity, my aspergillus penicillium is like 400. For me, that's a, that's a flat. Even if the total spore count at the bottom is less, like let's say that wall cavity, the total spore count is 400. All that was found there was 400 in the wall for Aspen. And let's say the outside, it was like 1500 because there's a whole bunch of other molds present, but the Aspergillus penicillium average was like 200. I'm still likely going to flag that, that Aspergillus penicillium at 400 as an issue, even though the total spore count is less than your outside baseline. Because when you're going really targeted at a wall or a cabinet or a ceiling, you're not getting all of the big airflow that's going on. You're in a really tight space. And so the odds of all of that airflow bringing that particular mold in that place and spiking it higher than what your big diluted air, you know, average is, is incredibly low. And the other thing is that we're usually sampling that area because we think there's a water damage issue, right? We know we sampled there for a reason and we're seeing an elevated count of a specific mold type, then I would typically look at that as an issue. So hopefully that helps answer that question for you guys. I know there's a lot more to go into, but you would require a lot of examples and we don't really have a lot of that. So um, we'll keep going. Let me see. Oh, here's a quick question. What do I like for dehumidification for a whole house? So there's a company called Santa Fe, like Santa Fe, Mexico, that makes a whole lot of different dehumidifiers for different areas of your house, specifically different sizes of homes, different spaces of areas. So if you're in a humid climate and you're trying to figure out like, how do I manage the humidity component of things? You can look at them uh, at them at Santa Fe and they have so many options over there. And I, I think you could probably call them and get on the phone and kind of talk through it and try to create a thing that makes sense for you in terms of configuration. But that's where I would go if you're looking for options that you can use for dehumidification. So hopefully that helps. Okay, so I saw another question coming in. I had talked about three things you could do to reduce your exposure load in the house where you're trying to figure things out. One of the things was opening windows for 10 to 15 minutes every day. Okay, the question that came in mostly was, well, if it's humid where I live, then if I open my windows, my humidity is gonna go up. All right, 10 to 15 minutes of a quick air flush like that is not gonna incredibly spike your humidity to these crazy levels that's gonna immediately cause problems, okay? So keep in mind, mold needs 24 to 48 hours to grow, okay? Especially the ones that grow on humidity. They actually need a less amount of time. They're gonna lean more towards the 24, 48 hour timeline. As you start getting into the molds that need more water, like Stachybotrys, Ketomium, Fusarium, like I mentioned earlier, they actually need more time. They might need several days to a week or something for them to, to grow. So the more water that's there, the longer it takes for the mold to grow. The less water that's there, you know, in terms of moisture, then there's certain molds that can kind of thrive on that pretty quickly. So there are molds that just grow in high humidity areas, okay? So the question's a fair question. I live in, I don't know, Florida. I'm gonna open my windows and 70% humidity outside. I'm flooding in moisture, what am I doing? This doesn't make any sense, Brian. Why are you telling me to do things that don't make sense? Here's the thing, like I said, opening the door and a window for 15 minutes is not gonna spike your humidity so much that all of a sudden you're now gonna start having mold growing all over the place, right? It's going to help dilute your air, 
all right? And then you're gonna close your windows again after 10 or 15 minutes. And if you have your air conditioner running, which you probably do in Florida, your air conditioner pulls humidity out of the air as it runs. That's part of what it does. So you're gonna reestablish that baseline, you're gonna be cool, and you're gonna have diluted your air, all right? So I just wanna give back because I saw a lot of questions like that. All right, question. What if you can't find water damage and I am still sick? I'm gonna say this. I don't know the history of your house. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if you just moved into a new place or if it's a place that you lived in historically or whatever. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that you've been here maybe for a little bit, okay? If you're sick and your doctor is showing that they suspect a mold issue, I'm not even exaggerating. Every time a medical practitioner has referred someone to us, this is not an exaggeration. I'm gonna say it again. This is not an exaggeration. 100% of the time we have found hidden mold problems in that house. Every single time, okay? So if you're saying you can't find water damage and you're still having health symptoms and you've been in your place, you know, for a little bit, right? You didn't just move somewhere new where maybe the problem was in your old house. Then also you probably just, your eyes probably just don't really, aren't trained to see it the way that ours are, which is fine, right? That's why you go to doctors to read your labs. That's why you go to different places to figure out what's going on. That's why you go to us to help you figure this out, right? So I would say odds are there are probably some water damage source area issues that are going on in the house and we would just need to figure it out. So whether it's an in-person inspection the way we work it now, or whether it's going through what we inspect together, whatever it is, we'll tell you everything that's going on. Okay, I think I got time for, I got time for like one or two more and then we'll call it a day. I'm scrolling, 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 trying to find the best last question. Isn't it the way, like when you know you're about doing something? When I was a kid, I, so I was a very good bowler when I was a kid. I was nationally ranked. I was also a very good basketball player. And like before I would leave a practice session, I would like force myself to do the perfect last shot or the perfect last thing. And it sometimes maybe end up staying for like an extra 15 or 20 minutes because it like wasn't good enough. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm trying to find the perfect last question. Let's talk about mold and clothing and we can wrap on that. So this, this is a lot of times, this is a big question after you've done a remediation, you found a problem, my clothes are in the house, I'm wearing these clothes, do I have to throw out everything I own? What can I do? My immediate answer is no, not for most people. Some people are like way more sensitive. So, so for those of you watching, my hands up, right? I'm kind of showing a scale. So the, aggress the amount of aggressiveness that you need to handle a problem needs to match your level of sensitivity. So if you're incredibly sensitive and you can't handle a whole lot, then you need to be a little more aggressive in what you do to remediate, to you know, handle contents, different things like that. If you're just somewhat sensitive, then you don't have to be as aggressive in terms of throwing out all your things or whatever. You can kind of meet yourself where you are and do it that way. Now the other really cool thing is that you don't just have to throw everything out now, right? Let's say you're down here. So you could say, listen, I'm way down here. You know, I'm really sensitive. I have some things that are expensive, sentimental, I don't want to get rid of whatever. Cool. Put them in storage somewhere. Just leave them there for a while. Reduce your immediate hit that you're getting off of things. Keep those things somewhere else. Start working on your healing. As you work on your healing, what's amazing is that you'll actually become more resilient. As you become more resilient, you can actually start introducing some of those old things back and your body will be able to handle it as you found an equilibrium, okay? So when it comes to clothes, I don't think you just have to throw everything out. The quick answer here, go get my free guide because I'm now late for a meeting and my team's gonna yell at me. Cleanmymoldystuff.com. I have a whole thing about clothes in there. I have a case study that I did with a very wealthy family where they clean things, they in certain different ways and all this stuff. 
And they actually found that mycotoxins were removed out of the clothing and they were able to wear them and they were fine, okay? So go to cleanmymoldystuff.com. You can go get that. It talks about how to clean everything, not just clothes. So if you're concerned about cleaning any of your items and how to do it or anything like that, you can go get it there. And that's what I got. So thank you guys. I'm wrapping up. I will talk to you later. See ya. So that's it for today's show, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and subscribe and give a rating wherever you get your podcasts. It'll help spread the word to those who really need it the most. 